The following talk was recorded at Label the Planet 2021 Empowering Users, the annual conference on current issues in ethics, social justice and technology from the Free Software Foundation. Label the Planet is a live conference and speakers often use slides and other visual tools to assist their presentation. You can see the videos of these talks at media.libreplanet.org or on the FSF Peertube channel. Label Planet speakers do not represent the mission of the Free Software Foundation. We host speakers talking about their use of free software in different kinds of political and commercial work. The FSF supports their freedom, but does not take positions on any political issues other than those necessary to uphold the principles of free software. Like all the FSF's work on behalf of the grievance of all computer users, Nemo Planet is made possible by thousands of individuals. To keep our work going, please consider becoming an associate member via my.fsf.org join or making a donation at my.fsf.org donate. You can stay informed by subscribing to our newsletter, The Free Software Supporter, at fsf.org fss and for more information on LibrePlanet, you can visit libreplanet.org conference. Hello, LibrePlanet 2021. Uh, this talk is titled, oh, yeah. This talk is titled The Challenges of Change for Value Centered Nonprofits and will be presented by Louis Villa and Catherine Marr. Louis is the co founder and general counsel at Tidelift with a deep free software resume that includes work for the Wikimedia Foundation, the Mozilla Foundation, the GNOME Foundation, and the Open Source Initiative. Catherine is the CEO of the Wikimedia Foundation, the nonprofit organization that operates Wikipedia and Wikimedia projects, and she's a longtime advocate for free software and a free society. In this talk, Lewis and Catherine will present their experiences as leaders at value-centered tech nonprofits that have undergone massive organizational changes and the lessons they learn. These are the stories of how one organization tried to rebuild after a crisis and another proactively reimagined its role in the broader free community. And our speakers hope that they will help attendees envision how their own communities can address the past and look towards a more equitable future. Thank you. Uh, you know, I wrote that uh, I wrote that introduction months ago when we submitted this talk, and it, it, it seems perfectly timely now, right? Um, you know, I wanted to start, uh, today is going to be mostly interview style. Catherine has so much hands-on experience uh, with some of these things that I really want to have that conversation with her. Uh, but we're going to discuss two things, and I wanted to give a little bit of a preface before we jump in. One of them is deeply sobering, uh, how boards and community leadership can respond to sexual harassment by a member of that same leadership. Uh, the other, I think, is the flip side of that, is deeply exciting. And how can boards and community leadership examine and update their mission in response to change? Uh, because we, by working in technology, we're inevitably exposed to change, right? And we can put hands to ears and pretend that's not the case, or we can jump in and embrace that, right? Before we start, I want to stress that while we're presenting this at a Free Software Foundation conference, the challenges we'll be discussing today apply to many value-centered tech nonprofits. In fact, Catherine and I heard just this week about another tech nonprofit facing these kinds of problems to the point where they've had to shut down a main community forum because of repeated flame wars around some of these issues. There are two main reasons, I think, why these problems are common in the tech nonprofit world. Uh, first of all, as I already mentioned, 
all institutions operating in tech, for-profit and nonprofit, work in a space that changes very quickly. So all organizations can be faced with suddenly changing external facts, new technology, new industry economics, new applications of old technology that might cause them to question or reassess their mission. Uh, second, many tech nonprofits were founded in a period where tech was at a low point in terms of diversity with few or no women in leadership and often built cultures of at best ignorance about women and underrepresented minorities and at worst, uh, callous machismo. So it's not surprising that again, like many for-profits, uh, many value-centered tech nonprofits have found it hard to reconcile uh, the way things have always been done uh, with improved expectations coming from staff, coming from donors, and coming from communities. Uh, so while we will, of course, be talking about specific nonprofits that Catherine and I have experience with, uh, definitely this is something that applies across the industry. So we're going to talk primarily today about two organizations that Catherine has deep experience with. The first of course, is the Wikimedia Foundation, which is what Catherine is best known for and has been an amazing leader for for uh, five years. Uh, and uh, but also a little less better known is the Sunlight Foundation, which was a uh, nonprofit dedicated to increasing transparency through the use of free and open source software in DC. So tell us a little bit about Sunlight Foundation and how did you come to be on that board, Catherine? Yeah, so the Sunlight Foundation, for folks who are le a little bit less familiar, is, an, as Lewis said, an organization that was really focused on governmental transparency. And to this uh, extent that it intersects in this space, it did work in policy, but uh, really was known, I think, in the late 2000s for being an organization that was very focused on open source tools that would allow for people who are interested in good governance to be able to deploy those for a variety of different um, ways of really sort of interrogating the performance of governance. The, and primarily focused at the national level. So we're really talking the US federal government. At some point, uh, that organization went through a transition and a leadership uh, change that was not, like the internal workings were not so visible to the outside. And there was a determination that that organization was gonna shut down. For someone like myself, who'd worked a lot for a long time with the Sunlight Foundation and very much valued what it had given to the transparency and open data, open government world, um, I was one of the number of people who advocated that that the organization's mission hadn't run its course and for my sins ended up on a board that was meant to help the organization reinvent what its future would be. I think I was on the board for probably no more than uh, three months when an article landed in the Huffington Post that went back 10 years looking at a history of like exclusion. Um, and I mean that it's the opposite of inclusive culture in the organization, um, but not, not just exclusion, a culture of exclusion and harassment, but also assault, credible assaults of sexual assault. And so as a board of an organization that was trying to figure out what the path forward for the organization was, we realized very quickly that there was no path forward without really looking at our past and where we had come from and what that had done in terms of the culture of the institution, but also the culture of the broader open government space. Right, right. And so that, I mean, that's such an interesting tension, right? These are organizations, you know, as I mentioned, a lot of organizations were founded around a certain set of values. And then, you know, it turns out you, you talk transparency or you talk freedom and empowerment externally and then maybe in the in the day to day workings, not so much. Um, how did that, um, you know, the big thing that came out of that was a big report 
that I guess uh, maybe we'll try to link to in chat, but it's it's pretty Googleable for those who are um, for those who are following along. How did that like? How did that process go from a board perspective? You know, yeah. what decide what made you decide that that was the right right route to go? Well, as soon as we saw this in the Huffington Post, I mean, there are some very pragmatic considerations as a board, and I'll start with those. And the fact that I'm starting with these don't doesn't mean that the values considerations weren't as important. But the pragmatic considerations are, okay, you've got an organization in which you now have a high-profile accusation of sexual, of someone very um, well-positioned within that organization being accused of sexual assault. And in this case, I think it was a charge of uh, attempted rape. Um, the the article detailed a culture of uh, heavy drinking and uh, harassment, uh, intimidation. What does that then mean for an organization that is attempting to do work in sort of a progressive space of open government and transparency? How do you square those values from an institutional mission standpoint? That's one question. Another question is, as an organization that's trying to hire, what does this mean for your employer brand? How can you even be an organization that's competitive in the space if you've got this culture sort of out there on the books? And then the third pragmatic question is, we're a nonprofit organization. What does this mean for like our fun our funders and the relationships that we have with other in partner institutions who may want to use the tools. So those are the really practical considerations the board had to think about. Um, the values questions, which I actually um, believe are just as important, were really what does this mean to be an organization that focuses on transparency in an environment in which we've not been transparent about our past? What does it mean to be an institution that sort of nominally has, if not, um, progressive values in the sense of political progressive values, progressive values in the sense of inclusion, a recognition that participation is critically important, sort of the ways in which we think about openness more broadly as everyone being able to participate, how can we square that with the institution that we're meant to be? And what do we do to think about justice and redress for primarily the women who were subjected to this culture, but everyone who was subjected to this abusive culture? And Myself and another member of the board, a woman named Zoe Ryder, who was very active in the government transparency movement, was at Transparency International for many years, uh, decided that this was a no-brainer. We had to do an external investigation. The challenges of doing this, however, for something that was 10 years old and for, for whom there were numerous victims who um, had really moved on from the organization and sometimes had no interest in even sort of being in contact with us, given the traumatic experiences they had, were, were pretty were pretty tough. So we launched an investigation. Uh, we reached out to everyone who'd been involved with the organization. We also put um, not just as employees, but also trying to find people who'd been involved in transparency camps and other sorts of initiatives that uh, Sunlight had had run. We put out calls for participation in our on our blog. We hired a third party um, legal firm to do investigation, to do the investigation, to do uh, interviews with people who had been affected. We were very uh, open in the way that we thought about who should be included in that, not just employees, but anyone who had something that they wanted to raise. And that produced a report that we then published uh, to the general public, really trying to account for some of the things that have been found. I view to this day that as being an, in, in, an incomplete report, just by the nature of some of the challenges we ran into in that process that I mentioned. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard in uh, I th don't think you should beat yourself up over that, right? Um, all of these things are in, in some way by nature incomplete, I think, right? Um, there's as somebody actually asked in chat, I think a great question, you know, do you feel like that board position was almost a glass cliff uh, in the sense of having been handed, you know, you know, <laughs> welcome to the board, here's this problem. Um, 
I think in retrospect, it made me understand why the institution had initially attempted to shut itself down. Um, but I think the challenge there and perhaps the lesson that comes out of it that I, is really key to the reason we're having this conversation is internally, whatever the prior board had made a determination around, whatever the internal culture was of the organization, that was not visible to those of us who were stakeholders in that organization. There was no public accounting for that culture. And so when folks like myself ran right off that glass cliff, perhaps, we did so because we didn't have an understanding of what had been previously grappled with as an institution. And so for me, this is one of the reasons that, you know, and it's a hard line to navigate because there are real claims here that have um, real liability that we're, we're dealing with, liability institutionally, liability for individuals, statutes of limitations in the case of sexual assault, right? These are difficult things to navigate. But the, the need for organizations to reckon in some way publicly with the communities that they serve, particularly nonprofit organizations, which have a public mission and a public duty, in order for us to really think about how we move the sector forward. So when we published this report, part of what we were hoping for was that it could provide not just an accounting, but we also detailed the way we approach this because we wanted other organizations to be able to approach this in similar challenges in with a little bit of a blueprint for how one might do it. Um, particularly small orgs, there were four of us on the board, you know, Sunlight's a small organization, 15 people. The idea that an even small organizations don't have the resources to do it was something that we wanted to stand against and say, actually, this is something that every and all organizations should be able to take on regardless of the resources available to them. Yeah, I was going to ask as my next question, were there parts of the process that you know, obviously a painful process uh, and an unfortunate one to have to go through, but are there any parts that you look back on and say, I'm really glad we did that report. And it sounds like at least one of them is that you think that there's a playbook there that other organizations can learn from, right? Um, but are there others yeah. that? Well, I am really glad we did the report. I worry, and I think my, you know, Zoe and others who are involved in it worry too, that the lesson is that some might shut down, right? And there is a component piece there where people might not see it as a roadmap, but a cautionary tale. And so I do want to, you know, we want to get into that a little bit, but I think that there, there are a couple things that I'm really, that I'm glad that we did. I'm glad that we stood up and said, this is something that we need to address. And despite the fact that this was 10 years ago and none of us were on the board at this particular time, there is an accounting that we owe to the people who are part of this community, to the people who were our share, like our stakeholders in this work, to the people who used our tools, to the people who advocated, who donated, um, who went on to have careers who were shaped by this experience. And I don't just mean uh, folks who are in the space still, I mean folks who were driven out of the space because of the experiences they had. There was an accountability that we owed, and I think it is important that we grappled with that, even if it was sort of an imperfect outcome. Um, I, I do think that it offers perhaps one of the few examples in which an institution sided with victims very publicly in trying to think about what what the future was and and tried not to pull punches that also protected the institutional um reputational uh aspects of the organization itself you know we i think we're empowered by the fact that we were meant to be an open organization and so we're able to say we're going to lean into this openness and really stand for what transparency means including scrutinizing ourselves um the 
the downside, as I said, is that as we went through this, we were really hoping that funders would step up and say, this is actually something that matters. This is something we want to hold all of our organizations that our fundees accountable to. We want to support you in this work. And we didn't see anything like that. Uh, we tried to organize panels and conversations in the aftermath of this to actually discuss what it means to have a culture of accountability. Very little support. The um, the woman who first came forward with these allegations, Sarah Schacht, who is, I think, somebody who needs to be recognized and, and um, held up as someone who's incredibly courageous in her work and bringing this to the public attention, uh, was also trying to, to really think about how to make this part of the broader conversation. And, and she also struggled to find purchase. So there's a disappointing lesson there, too, which is what do we can, as nonprofit organizations, what are the ways in which we encourage funders and other sort of supporters and stakeholders to really step forward and not only support organizations that are going through these types of um, internal interrogations, but also really looking at how, um, what's the accountability and what are the expectations for nonprofits to really create cultures of inclusion and safety for the people who they, who they both employ and the people whom they serve. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's, um, uh, it's such a tough balance for any uh, leadership in any organization, right? I don't think that's uh, unique to to nonprofits, though sometimes we, of course, take it a little harder when we're when we're nonprofits. I, you know, I was really uh, struck by one quote from the report um, that said that people interviewed uh, on the report participants indicated that Sunlight has the history, the profile, the expertise, and the staff to generate helpful advances in the areas of civic technology and open government. At the same time, participants, indicate, participants indicated that for Sunlight to successfully move forward, it must fully acknowledge its history and must embrace a commitment to lead on equity and inclusion. And it sounds like there was that tension throughout, right, of wanting to do the right thing. And ultimately, as you alluded to, but I just wanted to, for those who are not familiar with the, with the history, shortly after the publication uh, of this report, the Sunlight Foundation did choose to shut down. But you know, when you and I were talking the other day, you told me, and I'd love to hear a little bit more about this, that part of the reason that the organization felt like shutting down was the right thing, obviously there was a lot of interpersonal issues and things like what you've just been talking about, but also there was a sense that Sunlight had put some ideas out there at the right time and that some of those ideas were, you know, so broadly seated that Sunlight was not needed in the same way as it originally was, right? Yeah, and, and I think that I'm really glad you raised that because I do think that the lesson isn't that we shut down because there was a sexual assault allegation and we investigated it. Absolutely not. The lesson is that we shut down because as we went through this process of interrogating where we were as an organization and the culture that was um, you know, part of the organization, there was a question of what would be required for us to sort of shift the organization into a more inclusive space? And, and the answer is a lot of that work had already been done by the staff that were there uh, as we were going through this process. But the other piece of it was, does the, does the world sort of need a sunlight right now? And the answer I think in, in large part was not to do the same things that sunlight had been doing, right? So, so the civic tech space was quite mature in, in at that point in time, is quite mature. Uh, you have many organizations that are not 
identified as tech organizations that use the sorts of open tools that Sunlight built to continue their programmatic efforts today around transparency and accountability. Um, the organization spawned a entire community of practitioners that have gone on to do really great work in other spaces. And we felt as though that sort of national level governmental transparency through tech wasn't necessarily needed in the same way as it had been 15 years prior. Um, and that's okay, that's a good thing. And so we realized that in order for us to find a new way to rethink our mission, we would have actually had to really um, recompose the organization and maybe that wasn't necessary. Maybe it's okay to say a oh, nonprofit has run its course. It has done the thing that it set out to do. And it is, it's fine for us to say, thank you so much. Uh, thanks for all the fish and we're out. Uh, and I think that that's, Hopefully where we landed, we actually spun off all the teams into other organizations. They were supported. You know, we were able to find people who wanted to bring them on board. Um, and they've all landed. They've landed really well. They're really talented folks, but it's okay that the Sunlight Foundation is no longer here. Right. Well, that's actually, I think, a great transitioning point to talk about maybe the more optimistic, uh, <laughs> hopeful part of our, uh, of our conversation which is, uh, of course, Wikimedia and its best known project, Wikipedia, right? On the surface, this is a wildly successful project, right? It's got a huge volunteer community. It's one of the most widely visited uh, websites on earth. And it is really, uh, it, to, to, to the naive outsider, right? It looks like it is really fulfilling its mission and its vision of, uh, Boy, I, this is so embarrassing. I used to be able to quite. I used to practically have this tattoo. A world in which Florida, every single right? human, a world in which every single human can freely share in the sum of all knowledge. Ding, 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 ding. Uh, <laughs> and boy, you know, we're getting, you, you, we're getting there, right? Uh, I mean, I still say we. I haven't been there in five years, um, and yet I still say we, right? I, I, I gave a talk at Libra Planet about a year after I left the foundation, and it was not saying we in there was just, <laughs> you know, and, and of course no. I was. I'm going to say it's always a we because Wikipedia is a thing we do together. <laughs> and all of us who read it and donate to it and to contribute code to it and are either employees or volunteers, we are all we. Wikipedia is a thing that belongs to all of us. So how did you bring all those different all of us's <laughs> into this strategy effort, right? You decided, you know, despite this, this surface level, boy, it looks like it's successful by every metric we can reasonably think of for a nonprofit, right? And yet you decided uh, under your leadership that there needed to be a big public strategy effort and you need to bring in all of everyone. us, right? The, the big everyone, right? So tell us a little bit about that. Why'd you do it? How did you bring in so many people? Oh man, I did it because I am a naive optimist. Um, <laughs> no, uh, so in, in I joined the Wikimedia Foundation in 2014. Um, we turned 15 in 2016, January 2016, I think. And I was struck by the fact that when I joined the Wikimedia Foundation in 2014, we had been building from a point of our founding, but we were not building toward something. So we were building away from a established sort of identity, an encyclopedia, that, a free encyclopedia that anyone can edit, you know, a grounding in what does it mean to be a part of open culture and free and Libra software culture, a understanding that we wanted, you know, that we were based on this idea of a wiki that is lightweight and flexible. Um, the sort of 
identity of the product as, you know, this idea of the unit of the product as being the article page. But I didn't know where we were going. Um, we had gotten really good at building an encyclopedia, imperfect, right? Like there's much more to do, but but we knew that we were building an encyclopedia and yet sort of to what end? Because a free uh, world in which every single human being can share in the sum of all knowledge, there's a lot more than an encyclopedia there. And there's all sorts of questions about what does share mean and what does just sort of the distribution of knowledge mean and what does all knowledge mean and who are all these people, every single human being, because yeah, we've got like a billion and a half devices visiting our sites every month. But even if we're generous and say that's a billion people, that is not the entirety of the world's population. And so what's the sort of the in-between between a free encyclopedia, anyone can edit, and this idea of that sort of asymptotic vision um, that will never cross the line, but you know, we're going to keep trying. And, um, and we didn't know. And we didn't, you know, we didn't know. So we were 15 years old and I was I was struck by the fact that we needed to know because we needed to know where we were going. We needed to know what the guidance was going to be for making decisions and investments. We needed to think about, you know, as we're, we're dealing and I, and I, with all, all, all of my love to every single person who has made our stack possible for what it is today to support the incredible scale at which it operates, we refer to it as a just-in-time architecture, right? Like every single thing that we do at Wikimedia is sort of building on a little bit of cruft from the day before um, in order for it to scale to the way that it in the way that it can in order for it to be sort of incremental and evolutionary but it's not a roadmap and so we didn't know where to invest how to invest when to set up sort of you know new server colos when to think about uh new caching centers how you know what is what is the architecture meant to be as everyone's moving towards a more service oriented architecture and, and that really wasn't how we were built everything was super custom and bespoke and we were running all these policies so and, and the same is true at the community side. I'm focusing a little bit more on the technical, but it's absolutely the same as true on the community side, community governance, governance, community grant making, all, all of it. And the biases and balances in the Wikimedia community are sort of legendary. It's about 85% male in terms of the number of people, the representation of people who participate and contribute to Wikipedia. The majority of our user base is really in um, Western or global North countries, high socioeconomic industry countries. Uh, we are underrepresented in many of the places in the world in which populations are growing. Many of the language, it's not just smaller languages, it's really large languages like Hindi that are underrepresented relative to population. And so it seemed like we needed to have a plan. What we did in 2017 was launch a whole conversation on what does the next 15 years look like? We sort of aimed at 2030, which is a little squishy on 15 years, but we aimed at 2030 with this idea that if we spent, if we looked far enough into the future, we might actually be able to think about sort of what comes between that in free encyclopedia, anyone can edit and where we ultimately are meant to be and gives ourselves a vision for where we would be at 30 years compared to where we were at 15. Right. Yeah, I mean, that that question of the timeline, it's so easy to get stuck in the too near future, gets you very stuck in, you know, and, and in the too far future, it can be really hypothetical and abstract, right? Yeah, and that's why I... I, I was like 15 years, but it was really kind of 10 by the time we launched. Um, the reason for that was it was for it was for a couple of reasons. One, anyone who's ever done long range planning knows that it's incredibly hard. Futurists tell you it's virtually impossible for people to really, truly think on a long range cycle. Um, so I, I aimed for 10 with the idea that it might give us five. Um, but if you told people five, they'd give you two. So the idea was if we say 10, we might get five. Um, but also if you say 10, all of us who have been contributors to projects for a long time, part of open communities for a long time, 
there, whether we realize it or not, we have a built-in incentive to sort of maintain our prominence, our role, and our essentialism within a community. I am an essential contributor to a community. I'm an essential maintainer of a project because it is part of you know why we join the project. It's what gives us that intrinsic and extrinsic value of being part of the project. But if we look 10 years down the line, we can actually liberate ourselves from some of the expectations of what our role might be. I knew I wasn't going to still be at the Wikimedia Foundation in 10 to 15 years. It was okay for me to say, what would a future structure look like in which I'm not the executive director? You know, And the same thing is true for our community members, for our employees, for our contributors. They can look 10 years down the line and say, well, what do I hope for for this project perhaps after I'm no longer as in inside of it. Um, the other thing about 10 years is it's pretty easy to, as someone said to me, count babies. Where is the future is kind of easy to tell based on where we are today. And so we were able to look and say, you know, 42% of the world's population is going to be African by the year 2100. What is our current distribution in across the African continents? Where are contributors, including technical contributors, again, for this audience? Nowhere. We were nowhere where we needed to be. So what do we need to start investing in in order to start shifting that balance? Um, boy, uh, so many. We, we could obviously host a whole day <laughs> conference. Just, and you have, in fact, held many multi-day conferences many, many, on exactly many, this topic. Right? <laughs> and so I actually want to talk, you know, somebody in IRC asked about, um, you know, the ideal of open governance. And I think that um, there's, uh, that, that, that has been a two-edged sword in a lot of, I would say, techno-libertarian, and, and, and in the good sense of techno, I was talking with someone yesterday and I, I said techno-libertarian and she said, oh, like Rand Paul. I'm like, eh. um, yeah, yeah, no, I mean, there's a, there's a good, I think, a hopeful strain of techno-libertarianism that, Often, openness in government meant uh, anybody who showed up to the to the chat, yeah. right? And um, you know, you talked. Um, you know, I mean, obviously, the Wikipedia, the existing Wikimedia and Wikipedia communities were very involved in this, but there were also other pillars uh, that you based this on, right? You went outside the bounds of the existing community. So, tell us a little bit about how you did that, and you know, what, Look, where a, you think I'm that succeeded. I'm a recovering techno libertarian myself. So, um, <laughs> and and here the distinction that I like to make is actually between this idea of open as like a protocol, which is useful, and a practice and an intentionality, right? And so we can say like open as a protocol is something that we always adhere to. Absolutely, like that's a foundational thing for us at the foundation. But what does it actually mean to think about open as a practice? What does it mean to think about, it's not just about who shows up, but who we want in the conversation as we move forward? What does it mean to be really intentional about if this idea of openness means true participation, if it means that we all have the power to raise our voices and determine where we want to go, and yet some people are not in this conversation, are we just simply recapitulating other forms and norms of power? And so for us at the Wikimedia Foundation, like we'd done open consultations before in 2010, we ran one and it was great. We talked to thousands of community members. But, you know, even 2,000 community members are 2,000 anecdotes. They're not necessarily telling us what the future means for people who aren't in that, you know, 2,000 group, that group of 2,000. So we ran four different tracks of conversations. We ran one that was a research track that was looking at where babies are born, right? So that's that demographics I mentioned earlier. One was like, 
who are most experienced contributors and what do they have to say about our projects? What do they know? What's the historic understanding of our intention, our values, the cores of who we are? What is it that motivates people to join this project? What makes our culture essential and important in the world? Then who are the people who are sort of like our stakeholders who are external, who have maybe are not contributors in the sense of contributors to the code or contributors to the projects of content, but are the folks in the broader open tech world, who are folks in the broad and open culture world, who are people who are in the education space, you know, stakeholders like that. What's the future of free knowledge is what we basically asked them. And then we went to folks that we had never met before. And we said, why don't you use Wikipedia? What do you think of it? Why would it be valuable to you? Oh, you've never even heard of it? That's so interesting. Tell us more about what you think of when you think of knowledge. And we spent a lot of time thinking about what are these, we call them new readers. Like what do new readers need out of a project like Wikipedia, which frankly, you know, if you, if you have no sort of structural construct for an encyclopedia, maybe there's something entirely different that you need out of a project for free knowledge that has nothing to do with a reference, an archaic reference to bound books on a bookshelf. And we brought all four of these groups together, brought all of the research, all of the sort of documentation, and of course there's tons of documentation, it's all available, 2030.wikimedia.org. Um, and we gave it back to the community and we said, what do you think of this? Because if there's one thing Wikimedians are great at, it's going through reams of information and then synthesizing that back together. And that's how we got to our strategic vision, which is a, um, around becoming the essential infrastructure for free knowledge. And anyone who shares our vision can join us with these two twin pillars of knowledge equity, which is really around thinking about who's been excluded and how we bring them in. And what are the structural barriers that enabled that exclusion or created that exclusion, rather than just saying, we're open, everyone can join us. Um, and how do we break down those barriers? And then knowledge as a service, which is about thinking about, yes, the technical components of what like a service-oriented architecture is, but how do we make knowledge useful beyond just being a website? Sorry, you clearly got me on my like little stump speech. Oh, no. Well, I, I was actually, the next question I was going to ask was, um, and I think actually this ties back also to this conversation we were having about Sunlight Foundation, right? And Sunlight Foundation decided that its sort of core mission had been, I don't want to say exhausted, right, but seeded right Seated. that it was out there that, that the idea had gotten out there in the world and there were other organizations that were not just able but very excited to carry that torch right yeah, and absolutely. in 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 wikimedia um you know the strategic vision i really liked this um you said or the yeah, not you personally but the 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 says we will carry on our mission our mission of developing content as we have done in the past and we will go further, right? Yeah. The, the, it seemed to me, um, who was mostly outside of this because I was working on Tidelift and didn't really have time to participate, that this was, that you were viewing these two new pillars as additive, right? That knowledge as equity and knowledge as a service were things that didn't, um, didn't detract. change the core values. Yeah, didn't detract, didn't, you know, you're, Wikimedia is still very much Wikimedia, but Wikimedia now has some new frameworks to think about the world through, right? I mean, is yeah. that, do you think that's a fair? Yeah, absolutely. We're gonna keep building that encyclopedia. And if you want to contribute to that encyclopedia, 100%, we're here. And also we wanted to think about what is the next way of thinking about that broader vision? What does it mean to have both be an encyclopedia and to be something else and to be free knowledge? And so when I think about how, you know, what the connection is to in sunlight, in some ways, it's also an interrogation of our failings. And some of our failings are the structural failings that look at who's been excluded. And so 
obviously women have been excluded from the participation in building of Wikipedia, both in the volunteer community, but also the content that's been created. They've uh, not represented well by that content. What are we going to do to address that? Uh, minority communities, marginalized communities have been excluded uh, from the from the construction of Wikipedia. The Global South has been excluded from the construction of Wikipedia, not because they weren't able to be part of Wikipedia, but because we weren't resourcing adequately, we weren't thinking about what the products were that we were building that would enable for people to contribute successfully. We didn't have policies in place like a universal code of conduct that ensured that our projects were welcoming to new contributors. And so it wasn't just about like, if you build it, they will come. It was, we have this really core mission that is incredibly valuable and we must continue for the world. But if we're going to be successful with it in the fullest form of what it means to be transformative with free knowledge, then we need to think about what are the things that are holding people out and how do we intentionally program for that and software programming, sure, but also programming in terms of where does our money go, where does our governance priorities go, and how do we build an organization that is accountable to that? Right. Right. I, you know, I um, obviously I have a soft spot for universal code of conduct um, since some of that work originated out of my old team. Uh, but absolutely, I, you, you know, I, I actually that actually reminds me of something that's not in our notes. So I hope you'll forgive me for surprising you. But the uh, there's a continuity here, right, um, where these ideas of equity and of uh, technology structure didn't come out of nowhere, right? Like the organization and the movement were working on some of these things. And so some of what you were doing here is very much, and I wanted to ask in particular, because I'm struck here, uh, the theme of the conference here today at Libre Planet is empowering users, right? And that is a much broader conception uh, of empowerment than I think you'll find in uh, a lot of FSF sort of written, uh, you know, mission statement and strategy stuff, right? But it's also very true to what the staff has been doing here for years, right? They've been doing a wonderful job of diversifying this conference, trying to think through issues like accessibility uh, and all that while remaining true to the core mission. And I'm wondering, you know, was there that clear like that continuity of what the organization was doing without a framework into this new framework. Was there anything that, um, you know, did, do you think that helped make people feel more comfortable that it wasn't like a radical change, but still helps you do a lot? So since I'm leaving the committee at the end of next month, I think we formalized the reformists is what we did. Um, you know, I talked a lot during the work of this strategic visioning process as, about like the process is the product. And what I meant by that is I'm thrilled with the strategic direction we came with, up with. I think it is excellent. I think it is bold. I think it gives us really practical things to focus on. Um, I also think that had it not been so good, it would have been okay because we would have gone through the process of creating community through dialogue and and debating the things that we cared about and come to some sort of agreement about what it was that was our priority and what it was that we didn't care about so much. And that process of discourse with a global community, with a group of people who are here for in it for very different reasons, oftentimes, you know, some of us who are, we enjoy the contribution because it's sort of like, a, it's a technical challenge. And some of us enjoy the contribution because we're in it for like the big altruistic vision. And sometimes it's a little bit of both. And sometimes it's just the ego. And I really like, you know, being the most uh, expert in, in any of these issues. And I like being recognized at that. It's all fine. I like to say Wikimedia mirrors like our most base instinct with our highest altruistic regard. It's okay. 
Um, that process of bringing all of that together to come to some sort of outcome was the product. And, and so to your, your question around this idea of like, what did we do? Well, we formalized the reformists. The reformists were the ones who were like, this core thing is really excellent. And, but they were always on the fringe. And by bringing them into that dialogue, we gave them the opportunity to articulate their case to the broader community in a way that people went, actually, that's pretty good. Yeah, that makes sense. That doesn't challenge my core values. It doesn't threaten my role in this community, but it actually lets us think more expansively about how we live in to the vision at, at the highest level. Um, and giving people that platform really empowered them. And so now you see this deeply owned throughout the community where different communities, this is the other trick about it. We wanted it to be high enough, high level enough that everyone could interpret it for the context in which they operated. So it's gonna be completely different in Ghana than it is in the United Kingdom, than it is in Korea, and that's completely okay. Um, that was what we wanted to happen was that people had agency over how they really interpreted the strategic direction. Right. I mean, it seems to me, I, I love this formalizing the reformist uh, framing, right? Because it definitely seems to me, you know, it's not just that the reform, like that there was like a shift in power here. The the discussion really did change hearts and minds, right? That there Absolutely. is, that there's a lot of people who were into Wikipedia for other reasons, and they're still into Wikipedia for those other reasons, but they now understand yeah. better you know, my favorite example of that, uh, and I'm sure you've got a thousand more, uh, but I do want to get, I, I want to give this example and then switch gears a little bit, is that, you know, as everybody knows, Wikipedia is very much about citation needed. But of course, there are entire cultures that aren't, uh, you know, that haven't had the luxury of, you know, a huge written knowledge base, right? Uh, where a lot of evidence, so-called, is oral, right? Oral traditions, mm -hmm. um, you know, or stuff that's, or stuff that's written, but not online. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think this conversation over the period of many years has opened up a lot of Wikipedians eyes to that, where instead of just saying, oh, well, it's not on the web, I don't trust it, I don't believe it, therefore, let me slap a big citation needed sign on it. Instead, they're much more open to these ideas of, oh, okay, how can we integrate this into Wikipedian values, even though, yes. you know, we're gonna stop confusing Wikipedian values for it's on the web, right? Um, we're going to think about it in a more nuanced and healthy way. Uh, so the question I did want to have to follow up on that um, is, you know, how are we starting to see this play out in practice, right? You already mentioned the Universal Code of Conduct, and there's been a couple questions in chat about uh, Wikimedia Enterprise and you know how that plays into the questions in chat aren't exactly framing it this way, but all uh, you know Not very much. Service. So how can you can you talk a little bit about that? Because there's any time money comes into the equation, uh, you know, it makes some people nervous for not bad reasons. Um, so we'd love yeah. to hear a little bit more about how how those how the vision and mission and the practical reality of of, of a paid API works. Yeah, so I, I want to start by saying I, I actually think knowledge as a service is much bigger than selling data to large uh, reusers, right? It is part of one of the part of the conversation that we had from the very get-go about even having a paid API was like, how do we also ensure that it, this is accessible to people who don't want to pay for it? How do we ensure that the development of something that is better documented with greater uptime and stability also benefits folks who are free reusers of this? How do we ensure that when we offer this, we still make, we are still maintaining our dumps so that anyone who doesn't want to use it can still use it, right? And so how do we create, and we, we joked internally, our biggest competitor for this is ourselves. 
um, because we are not forcing anybody to do this. You know, I think the the in dialogue with the community, one of the there was some tension around this, and I think it's very healthy. Much like there's tension around this idea that our reusers of Wikimedia content compromising our values like citations and the ability to go back to the, the original source, the transparency at the level of the content and the code, um, or are they extending our values by getting more knowledge out there to the world? There's a real robust debate within the Wikimedia community around that. And similarly, there's a real robust debate around sort of what we should be doing with this enterprise product. Our goal was to make sure that this was a non-compulsory thing, but rather something that people could sign up for if they found value in it. And in doing so, a thing that was a priority, at least from my perspective, was that the revenue that would come from it would be something that would flow back to our communities to expand the free knowledge ecosystem. And so when I think about this, I think about the fact that there's already extractive value um, from free knowledge from the commons. And this is not just true in like the free knowledge space. This is true everywhere we see the commons. Extractive value from openness. Um, what do we do to create a greater model of sustainability that ensures openness gets to continue. So you could look at this and say, well, Wikipedia, you know, when we have intermediation of Wikipedia, it means fewer people coming to the sites. It means fewer people making edits. It means fewer people donating through small do dollar donor models. Um, maybe, you know, that's, that's a theory of the case. Um, so what would it mean for us to, you know, shore up that, that intermediation? Another argument for this is, the primary utilization of reusers is for dominant culture. It's for English speakers, it is for dominant pop culture, who then creates the funding for under um, underrepresented communities, communities that don't have a market incentive for developing them out. So communities of smaller languages, communities of lower socio, you know, uh, socio, uh, sorry, economic, um, less developed markets, for example. And so can we use this funding to really think about investing in underrepresented communities in a way that helps advance knowledge equity? And these were sort of the conversations that we had around like, you know, is there almost like a Robin Hood type approach that we can take here that, that says, you know, this funding is something would otherwise not be available to us. It's a service that is already, um, people are already taking this data and reutilizing it for commercial purposes. Is there a way to be able to create value that comes back to the commons that enriches it? And my real hope for what we do with this, and, and again, this will be up to sort of, you know, the future CEO, is that, um, it is something that is not just invested in Wikimedia, but is something that is invested in the broader idea of open and free knowledge overall. So, you know, when we think about what the future of free software is, when we think about the future of how do we maintain some of the core projects, when we think about the future of um, what does it mean to digitize free knowledge, you know, to your point, there are there's knowledge that isn't digitized. It's not just oral knowledge. It's, you know, things that are in archives that are, are inaccessible. Um, what can we do to help shore up some of this and create um, the resources that are available for everyone to participate in this in this broader open community. Right. I mean, I think this is all a great example of the kind of thing that uh, I was talking about in the introduction. Right. This is not this is not that the encyclopedia has failed. Right. Uh, this is that the world is a much broader space than we really realized at first. Right. Wikidata. Uh, which you know, many people in the audience will have heard about now, but maybe not five years ago. I mean, oh, you know, Wikidata, Wikidata is one of these sort of slow motion, um, you know, overnight successes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, an over an overnight juggernaut that takes ten years, right? Um, yeah. And um, that uh, you know, um, I think that's the kind of thing that um, that that Wikipedia. 
we sort of, so the, the value of structured knowledge was something that, you know, we sort of knew, right? There've always been structured knowledge geeks in, at Wikipedia, um, but at the same time, realizing how important and potentially powerful it could be on a global scale is something that, that was a change that the outside world sort of, I don't want to say forced on, forced on us as a movement, right? But it's something that we could have continued to ignore a little bit, or we could have embraced it, right? And yeah, I, obviously, yeah. And full disclosure, I see structured knowledge is very much part and parcel of the future, right? So Wikidata has been a like obsession of mine since I started in the organization and funding it. And part of the strategic vision was like, how do we go beyond Wikipedia to really recognize Wikimedia Commons, Wikidata, Wikisource, all of these other projects that have tremendous value to the free knowledge ecosystem. So, you know, as we think about navigating change, I think that, you know, some of the themes that come out for me are really around, we have these missions as values-oriented nonprofits that had tremendous value when they started and the world has changed around us. So how do we change in response to the world? I like to think about Wikipedia as an ecosystem. It is literally built for change. You know, we get to change it the average edit rate for Wikipedia is about 350 times a minute, which means we change Wikipedia 350 times a minute, which means we can change it as much as we want. Whoever is part of that creation and contribution process changes Wikipedia. There is no ideal prior state. It is a constant work in progress. And so our mission should be a constant work in progress too, of how do we align against sort of a North star of our values of what change we're trying to affect in the world while adapting our tactics, our structures, our governance to the changing realities of the world. And also continuously auditing ourselves to say, when we started, who, you know, was this serving a certain cohort? Do, does the, the model of serving that cohort still help us advance our vision today? Do we need to structurally change ourselves in order to think about what comes next for our future? Like that's an incredibly important thing. And also saying, maybe that thing that we started out doing, maybe there's innovation out there in the world. Maybe there are new opportunities that we can embrace while ex and that will enable us to expand the impact that we have on the world while also being able to stay true to our mission and ourselves. And so that was really sort of the approach here is like, how do we see this? I almost think of it as living into our responsibility. You know, we, we're, we started as a happy accident. Wikipedia, Wikimedia Project started as a happy accident. Whoops, <laughs> turns out there's this thing. There's like this wiki software. It's great. It's better than this other model that new peer review that, that Jimmy was starting with. Um, and then all of a sudden, it was something that the whole world relied on. And there's a tremendous pressure in that. Also, we saw the gaps between where we had set out to be and like that true sort of inclusion of participants from, you know, not all the different areas that I've mentioned previously. So how do we interrogate where we've fallen short in terms of who we've excluded intentionally or unintentionally, and also live into the responsibility for what we now mean for the world. Because at this point, Wikimedia is a public good. And so there is a responsibility inherent in that that goes far beyond us just having fun um, at Wikimedia conferences uh, that actually is around how do we maintain something with, a and I think our, our, you know, I don't mean to imply that our you know, engineering teams didn't already see this, but like, how do we maintain something culturally, values, governance, you know, technically in a way that lives into that understanding of that public good and then builds from there? I, you know, I think that leaves us in a great place to ask one final question before uh, we run out of time, which is based on something that our old colleague Eric Muller uh, asked. I saw him in, pop into the chat. chat. <laughs> <laughs> hey, uh, and, um, you know, how do we, what advice do you have for small nonprofits 
you, you you started saying, you know, Sunlight is actually about the same size as FSF, right? It's around 15 oh, employees, small board. Um, you know, and Eric specifically asked about how do you prepare your governance structure for stuff that that occurred at, like that that occurred at Sunlight? How do you include voices not already drawn to take part in the work? I would add, uh, you know, and of course, this could be a whole conference in and of itself, so you don't have to give a, a you know, perfect answer here, but this question, you know, I loved what you just said about auditing the, uh, what I would phrase as, what's that? As in closed loop systems, right? Like, yeah. Yeah, how do you, how do you make sure that you are that you are aligning that part of the loop that is the pragmatic, right? What are you doing in the everyday with the bigger values that you really want to live, right? Because those can look. It's a rare nonprofit where those don't diverge from time to time, right? How do you and how do you think as a small nonprofit about bringing those back together, um, you know, or medium sized one? Yeah, um, I think that. So governance is so important. Uh, I don't, I don't, I think that actually some of the issues that we saw at Sunlight were governance failures uh, in terms of not, not that I'm saying that the previous boards didn't care about the issues, but I'm, but we're not empowered necessarily to be able to address them effectively. And so you have to ask yourself, like, where does power sit on your board? Do you have a regenerative board that turns over so that you don't have the same people there for, decades do you ensure that funders don't have outsized weight on your board i really dislike the practice of having funders on the board i think it can be incredibly harmful because um, it tends to perpetuate funder incentives rather than you know mission incentives um, do you think thoughtfully about the balance of power within those boards and are there clear bylaws that and you know governance gate care like are there clear bylaws and practices that enable healthy transitions both in terms of sustaining institutional knowledge so you want people who are around for a certain period of time balanced against fresh perspective um, what are the ways in which boards draw from the stakeholder community and you know in Wikimedia we do community elections a big contention over the course and something I advocated for very strongly during my tenure is those community elections, which are sort of one person, one vote, tend to be incredibly disproportionately um, representative of white men from the English speaking communities. And so what are the structural um, uh, safeguards you put in place to ensure that your board is both representative of your core community, but also the communities you seek to serve? And then how do you interrogate on, I think, a three year cycle you know, what we did was we said, okay, we've got like this 15 year vision, which by the time it actually was in place was like 10, which is fine, 11, maybe. Um, we then chunked it out to like three year plans. So every three years we go through, are meant to go through a process of saying, you know, what, what have we done in the past three? Does this align? And then on an annual basis saying like, did how did we do against that three-year plan? So if I know in 15 years, we're meant to be the essential infrastructure of free knowledge. Well, what's the, what do we need to clean up in our house today to make sure we can actually get there? Um, and some of that stuff can be really basic. Like, do you have a functioning HR system? Do you have employee handbooks that protect your people? Sorry, did I, did I touch a nerve? Um, do you have employee <laughs> handbooks that protect your people? Do you have a way of um, auditing your, your performance with your core audience or core stakeholders so that you know that the work of your institution is actually serving the mission. So I think that it's, yes, you need to be incredibly ambitious and sort of have like, what is your North Star, your vision? What is your 10-year plan? And then, and it doesn't have to be a plan. It's not really a plan. It's a strategic, it's a 
strategic direction is what we said. It's not a plan. You can't have a plan for 10 years. And then what is your sort of three year? What are you going to do to get to that strategic direction? And every year, then how do you incrementalize that to say, this is what we're doing this year. And when you do that on an annual basis, you're checking in with yourself on a three year basis. You're saying this is like the next set of priorities. And it's always sort of in relation to that, that higher um, vision. So I think every nonprofit can do that of every single, you know, every size, every scale. Um, I, I don't know if that answers the question that Eric asked. I, I, I hope it does, but I, can, I, 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 I probably missed some things too. I don't know what the audience is interested in, so I want to speak to you. Yeah. Uh, I, I think, no, I think that's actually a perfect note for us to wrap up on uh, with, I will say one other thing from chat, which is uh, Wikipedia may not be perfect, but it's constructed by a ton of individuals with a little expertise sometimes, but as a whole it has surpassed any other similar attempt in the history of humankind in terms of the quantity and quality of the accumulated knowledge across time. Congratulations. So, yeah, I mean, I think, thank you so much for this talk, Catherine, and for sharing some of this experience. And, uh, you know, congratulations on an amazing five-year run and uh, can't wait to see what you do next. So thank you, thank you so much. Thank you so much. And thank you to the audience uh, for all your- Yeah, thanks so much well. to the audience. Yeah.